Well, good morning. It's good to see each of you here today. We have gathered this morning to partake of what only God can do for us. We have come in need of what only Christ can provide. And we've just sung of Christ, the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true. And so let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him for his help, that he would be faithful to us now as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now in need of your help as we look to your word. We pray that you would give us your spirit in abundance so that this time would be good and profitable for us. We pray that you would show us yourself within your word, that you would show us ourselves and that you would show us our Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So there are some passages in the Bible that have really sharp elbows, like they can sort of easily offend and upset the things that we think are good and right. We all, if we're honest, can find ourselves adhering to various traditions, various customs, various practices within the church that have no real mooring or grounding in the word of God at all. And so one of uh, the passages, there, the, excuse me, the passage we're looking at this morning is one of those that could easily offend. And I'm just going to go ahead and give the disclaimer now that I can't nuance every single thing that I'm going to say this morning because we would be here all afternoon. And it also would just kind of be a waste of our time in one sense, too, if we're having to qualify, like overly qualify everything that's stated. And as we're going to be looking at a passage today, frankly, friends, that's going to blow up man-made religion, I don't want our posture and I don't want you, I don't want myself to be sitting here kind of in, I don't know, pride or arrogance thinking, well, we don't do that man-made religion stuff here at CBC. So yeah, let's roast all the people who do. That would not be a helpful posture. We don't need to come to this with this kind of edginess, as though like we've got it all figured out. The reason, the greatest news in the world about the fact that man-made religion is not legit is because it can't save anybody. So it's like, we're going to blow up man-made religion because Jesus does. But in doing that, we're going to see and be pointed to our only hope for salvation. So I don't want you to misunderstand me. I hate man-made religion. I'll go ahead and say it. I hate a lot of what goes on even in the American church. I trust many in the room feel the same way. But it is appropriate for us to humbly come to a text like this and feel that kind of indignation, but it best not end there. We should not just end with indignation and pointing fingers at people who are wrong. We end in worship and praise and adoration of Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can save. That's the point of this. It's not to explode traditions of man just to explode traditions of man or to be punchy, right? Or to, I don't know, gain some Twitter followers or something. It's because Jesus is the only hope for sinners. And in blowing up man-made religion, we see that more clearly. That's sort of my agenda this morning. Um, that's what my hope is for now. So I've already kind of laid my cards out for you. I think some fundamental errors that do exist in evangelicalism will be exposed this morning. And we will trust the Lord with that. 
On a more positive note, as we make our way towards the text, let me just state it this way. Our faith in Christ and in his sufficiency to save us is under assault every day. All right, so like we've got to come to terms with that. Our faith in Christ and in his sufficiency to save us is under assault all the time. It's under assault by our own conscience because we do wrong things regularly. We just prayed about many of them. And so we're haunted by our own consciences. Our faith in Christ and in his sufficiency to save us is under assault by our battle with sin, by the accusations of the enemy, and even by the broader church culture in which we find ourselves. And if I'm going to leave you with anything today, even though this is only the introduction, you can remember this, I hope. It is precisely faith in the finished work of Christ that produces true transformation and sanctification and joy and rest. It is precisely faith in the finished work of Christ that produces true transformation, sanctification, joy, and rest. So, with that in mind, let's look to the Bible. Mark chapter 7. We're going to be looking this morning at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. We are making our way at a relatively decent clip through Mark's gospel. For those of you who are new with us this morning... Here at CBC, welcome. It's great to have you. Usually the way that we do this preaching thing is we make our way through books of the Bible. And so right now we find ourselves in the gospel according to Mark. We've already considered the first six chapters together over the last number of weeks. We find ourselves now in chapter seven. We're glad you're here today. And we hope that this is profitable to you. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, don't sweat that. We're gonna get the verses to the passage up here on the screen. It will help you if you follow along even as I read it and then as we make our way through it. So now, before we go any further, let me read God's word for us. Beginning in Mark 7 and verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I have two points that kind of coincide with the two main sections of the text. And then after those two points, I have an extended meditation to conclude our time. So that's the general plan. We'll start with point number one. Point number one is the truth about man-made religion. Point number one, the truth about man-made religion. We'll be looking at verses one through 13 together for the next several moments. So the main thrust here, friends, is that Jesus is pointing out that in his context, first century Judaism, amongst God's people, the traditions of man were trumping God's word. That's the issue. The traditions of men that trump God's word. Let's look at verses one through five and just kind of understand the setting here. So the Pharisees and the scribes come from Jerusalem to Jesus and they make an observation that Christ's disciples are not living in accord with the tradition of the elders when it comes to ceremonial hand washing. And so it's important for us to understand that the Pharisees had taken the good and upright law of God, the commands that God had given his people to live by. They had taken those commands clearly given by God through Moses and had added to them. They had built what is often referred to as a hedge around the law. The motivation was a good one. We ought not be unnecessarily unfair to them. The motivation was good. It's like, okay, if God has said we should not do A, B, or C, then let's put some extra parameters around A, B, and C so that nobody will violate A, B, and C. You understand that reasoning. If to go that far is sin, then let's just back that line up even further. And let's build a protective hedge, a protective fence around the law to keep people from violating God's commands. There were literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other laws that had been added to the law of God over the course of centuries. And so some of them, this kind of hedge around the law that would be in view would be stuff like this. The tradition of the elders, according to all these things that needed to be washed and done a particular way. So these Pharisees, these scribes come to Jesus and they say, look, bro, like your disciples are not living according to the tradition of the elders. In other words, they're missing the mark. It's clear that they are implying that Jesus's disciples are not meeting the standard. They're not measuring up. You can see that in verse five when they ask that question. Why don't your disciples do this? Because obviously they should. If they're going 
to live an upright life, these things, according to the tradition of the elders, are necessary. They're necessary for uprightness. And your disciples, they're not doing this stuff. What's going on? Jesus responds, beginning in verse 6. His response is pretty direct, I think we could say. He says to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. So there we go. Very friendly of, of Jesus. You can tell that he's about to proverbially, you know, put the grenade on the table and pull the pin. It's, there's going to be some carnage and some wreckage here. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written? And then he cites Isaiah from chapter 29 and verse 13, as we have it notated in our Bibles today. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he tells them that you're leaving the commandment of God in order to follow these traditions, these suggestions of men. What are you doing? You have a fine way, he says in verse 9, of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition, your own practice. And then he illustrates this. He gives an example. He says, Moses was really clear about how we're to treat our parents, for example. Honor your father and mother. But you say... If a man, verse 11, tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me, whatever I would have given you in order to provide for you in your older age, well, it's korban, it's given to God. And Jesus is very clear. You don't permit people to do what God would have them do for their parents with this nonsense of Oh, well, I'm giving my stuff to God. And he says, you've made void, verse 13, the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. So with respect to this kind of leaving the commandment of God and holding to the tradition of men, let's just call this what it is. The only way any of this stuff ever gains traction is if it sounds pious. The only way any of these traditions of men ever gain traction in the church is if they sound pious like this. So notice how pious sounding this is. It's like, yeah, mom, dad, I, I'm to honor you, but like I'm going to do one better. I'm going to give my stuff to God. Right. It sounds so pious that people hear that and they say, well, yeah, I'm going to give my stuff to God. Clearly, that's honoring to the Lord. Jesus says, no, it's not honoring to God. Doesn't matter how it sounds, you have violated the clear command of Scripture. I'm giving my things to God. Now, as a result, mom and dad, I've got nothing left for you. But all my stuff's for the Lord. So, friends, the dangers in the church are often things that sound and appear pious but in reality contradict or obscure the truth of God's word. Those are the things that are perhaps the most dangerous in the church. Things that sound and appear pious, but in reality contradict God's word. So there are a number of examples that we could give even in our own time. But here's something that 
that I know we've talked about as a church. I, I've had conversations along these lines with a number of you even over the last few months. If you were to ask most people in churches in our context, like where does the real transformational stuff happen in your Christian life? Like what's the most important part of your Christian life? I think to a man, most people would say, well, it's my personal devotional time with God. It's my quiet time. Now, I've said this many times, quiet time, personal devotions are good, right? I'm not saying they're not good. They're good. But the thinking that our time alone with God is where the real important transformational stuff happens contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture on the importance of life in the church and the importance of gatherings like this. The Scripture is crystal clear about gathering as a church, assembling like this for preaching and teaching of God's word, for singing, for prayer, for the Lord's table, for baptism. We're told constantly to live life in the context of the local church in the New Testament. But yet, in our church context, the corporate assembly and life in the body of Christ is seen at best as a supplement to the real thing that happens when I'm alone with God, whether that's in my prayer closet or on a mountaintop somewhere. Hebrews 10.25, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Bible's clear. I might say this another way in terms of things that are dangerous in the church. Not only are they pious sounding things that contradict the word of God. Dangerous things in the church are things that pull us away from the Holy Spirit driven life of faith in Christ. So think about Romans 7, 6, where Paul makes a distinction about how we used to live and how we now live. He says, but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we have a tendency, like in, in looking at the Pharisees in this text, we ought not think, well, that's them and we're different. We are just like them. With the best of motivations and the best of intentions, oftentimes we codify the Christian life to death. We add all kinds of principles and rules to scripture. Like if you're going to be a good Christian, then you need to do all of these things, right? This is how we function. It's how we operate. A lot of that comes from the fact that we're prone to put our eyes on the wrong thing. Namely, we're main, we put our eyes on us rather than keeping them fixed upon Christ and what he has done. So just like the Pharisees, we add categories that aren't in the scripture and we can make those things primary rather than making Christ and the work of Christ primary. Sometimes this codification thing manifests itself in full-blown legalism, though that's rare. That's rare. Where anybody's like thinking, oh, well, like literally it's just straight up works righteousness. Like I'm just going to literally earn heaven. That's not that common. It exists, but it's not that common. But what's much more common is this kind of posture where Things happen underneath the banner of the gospel. It's like, of course we trust Christ. 
Of course we do. But then when it comes to how we need to live, when it comes to the Christian life, we've got this code that we follow, that we impose upon others. What's troubling at points too is that everybody's code looks a little bit different. That's a a different conversation for a different day, right? The Christian life, friends, becomes more about us and what we do and less about Christ and what he did. Let me try to illustrate this just in two or three ways quickly. Kind of try to put some flesh on what we're talking about here. So imagine this. You're, you're in a conversation with a person, a sincere believer, who is asking you, what is the, the real heart of the Christian life? What's the real marrow of the Christian life? Help me, brother. Help me, sister, with that. And you look at this individual and say, well, okay, Like high level from the Bible, trust Christ, love your brothers and sisters in the church. And that person is going to look at you and say, uh, yeah, and when are you going to tell me the rest of it? Right. You give that simple biblical answer. Trust Christ. Love your brothers and sisters in the church. And it falls flat. Like you've got to be kidding me. There's got to be a lot more to it than that. What about all the rules? The reason that we react that way, the reason that the simple biblical answer is so unsatisfactory, I think, this is a big factor, is that we are so used to living in a church context where suggestions are taught as doctrine that a simple biblical answer falls flat in the ears of the hearer. I'm going to say that again. We live in a church context where suggestions are taught as doctrine. And so, when we hear simple biblical answers, they fall flat. Another way to illustrate this. Think about what the New Testament says about marriage. Like directly to marriage. You're not going to find many passages. You're going to find Ephesians 5. You're going to find 1 Peter 3. And some in the room, you might be like, really, brother? Is that it? Yes. In the New Testament, that is the only texts that speak directly to marriage. Jesus references it, I know, with the Sadducees when they ask a question, you know, who's this woman going to be married to in heaven? And he makes the statement that marriage isn't going to exist in heaven. But in terms of speaking directly to marriage and how husbands and wives are to live together, there are two passages. So there's not a lot of ink spilled. The exhortation, if we were going to sum it up, we're going to sum up what the Bible says about marriage. This, in Christ... Live a humble, loving, submissive life with one another. And and all of us are like, that that can't be it. And we know that because why? There is an endless list of principles out there for husbands and wives. There have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books written about how we're supposed to live. And all of that is fine and good. The problem exists, though when we latch on to those principles and those books as though they are practically the Bible. A third way that we see our own tendency to do this. All right, whenever you ask somebody, how's the Christian life going? I'm like, I'm just like this. I'm not saying that I don't respond this way. Just think, whenever you ask or whenever you're asked, How's the Christian life going? We all, to a man, immediately respond with all the things that we're doing. 
It's because we're so conditioned to think this way. So it's like, hey, hey, brother, how's the Christian life going? And we immediately are like, okay, we start talking about how my time in the word has been, how my time in prayer has been, how my quiet times are going, how my disciplines are going. And it's like, look, those things are all good, but you haven't even answered the question. How's it going? Like, really? Like trusting Jesus, you know, the battle against sin. Loving your brothers. How's that going? You know, that's what we mean. But we're so conditioned to think in these codified ways that we respond. Well, let me tell you about all everything I'm doing and all the books I'm reading. We're going to move on to point number two. For your sake and mine. Point number two. Here we go. The truth about defilement. So we thought the truth about man-made religion, number one. Number two, the truth about defilement. We're going to look at verses... 14 through 23. So the truth about what we are is what is going to expose the foolishness of man-made religion. So Jesus, again, verse 14, calls the people to himself. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. It's not what's outside of us that corrupts us. That's what the general kind of thinking in the world is, it's like, well, we're, we're corrupted by our environment. We're corrupted by bad examples, etc. Jesus is saying, no, fundamentally that's wrong. It's not what's outside of you that corrupts and defiles you. It's actually what's in us that defiles us. The real issue is inside. It's in our hearts. He enters the house, verse 17. He's left the big crowd. His disciples, just kind of the inner circle are around him, and they ask him about what he said. Like, explain the parable. And he asked them, don't, you don't understand. I mean, and they don't. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach? So he's talking about food here, right? And this kind of way that in his context, people would have been seen to be defiled if they ate something unclean or if they had not washed their hands and then ate food, they would be defiled. He says, don't you see that that could never defile a person because it goes into your stomach and then it's expelled and we see there kind of parenthetical piece here. Thus he declared all foods clean, which this amongst other texts like Acts chapter 10, 11, we don't abide by old covenant food laws anymore. Sorry for any of our Seventh-day Adventist friends out there, but there it is. He says, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So in thinking about all of these kinds of regulations and man-made religion and trying to protect ourselves from defilement, think about the words of the Apostle Paul, excuse me, in Colossians chapter 2, where he says of regulations like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, Colossians 2, 21 and 23. Why is that? Why is that? That all of these rules and regulations are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's because the problem is much deeper than any of us want to admit. Jesus says again, pointedly, straightforwardly in verse 20, it's not... What goes into you, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. 
And then he lists all of these things for from within, out of the heart of man, come all of this bad stuff. This sounds a lot like the list that Paul gives in Romans 1. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. None of those things are good. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So for the rest of our time together this morning, we're still in point number two. We're not moving on to the meditation. I am going to be giving you a lot of words that are not my own. They are just the the scripture. I'm not going to give you the references because I just want the word of God to just kind of land on you. So we'll figure out a way to get all the scripture references to you if you want them. But I just want you to listen to the word of God as I'm going to read a lot of it in the rest of our time. So how bad off are we really? What does the Bible say about our hearts and about our natures? It has quite a bit to say. The Lord saw, this is early on in the history of humanity, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Answer, nobody. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Like y'all, it's bad. It's bad. Like how bad are we? It's bad. Worse than we want to come to terms with often. And even upon conversion, even once we have trusted Christ, We're indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, as the scripture tells us, and we are a new creation in Christ. The old man remains. The internal war exists inside the believer where our spirit wages war against our flesh. That's the language of scripture. The apostle Paul describes it this way. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin still dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You ever been there? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Thank God for words like this. Now, if I do what I don't want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says elsewhere, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We are at the same time justified and sinner. 
That is the great paradox and the great tension in the Christian life. We are at the same time justified and sinner. We've all, again, if we're being honest, and if we can't be honest in the church, where can we be honest? If we're honest, we have all had thoughts that we never imagined we would have. Or think for just a second. Think of all the things that you have done that you swore you would never do. And I'm not, yeah, I'm talking about big stuff because that's immediately where our mind goes, heinous things. But I'm also talking about like regular everyday things, like the way that you speak to other people whom you say you love. Like the ways that you resent and are bitter towards other people that you say you love. Ordinary people are capable of extraordinary evil. I mean, all you have to do is listen to a you know, news podcast or whatever, and you know that that's true. People are always shocked when like shootings and terrible things happen, and we think, how could that happen? It's because every human being is capable of extraordinary evil. That's something that we all have to own and come to terms with. Like essentially what we're doing in the church is we're asking you to be honest with yourself about who and what you really are. Christians in the church sin, even in heinous ways. Our hearts still have inherent corruption. Martin Luther is helpful on a number of levels, especially when it comes to thinking about things like this. This is perhaps a more lighthearted way to put it, and I figure you might need that this moment. He was talking about, Martin Luther was talking about his life as a monk, you know, when he would go to the monastery and he tried for years to be, you know, penitent enough and disciplined enough and rigorous enough to somehow alleviate this guilt that he felt in his conscience. You know, if I just do enough, then God will be pleased with me. So he talks about his life as a monk and he says this, here's the problem with that. When I went to the monastery, I brought the old rascal with me. Amen. Well, it doesn't, you, know, you, can, you can discipline yourself and do all those kinds of things and the old rascal follows you, as Luther so colorfully said. So now, friends, I want to turn our attention just as we end our time together today to an extended meditation. I'm putting that extended word in there just to front load it. I'm going to give you this sentence two times and I'm going to give it to you slowly because this sentence is as important as anything I've said today. This is what we're going to think about kind of putting it all together, man-made religion, our corruption, these things that Jesus is pointing out. Here we go. The reality of our corruption makes the gospel clear, exposes the folly of man-made religion, and helps us see how the work of Jesus is our only hope. Say that again. The reality of our corruption makes the gospel clear, It exposes the folly of man-made religion. And it helps us see how the work of Jesus is our only hope.
So, biblically speaking, friends, if we're going to talk about us and we're going to talk about what we must do, like if it, if it is incumbent upon us to do something to enter heaven, to enter eternal life, what is that biblically? If it's about you and me, what we must do ourselves to enter into eternal life, there is only one answer to that question, and it never changes. Be perfect. You want eternal life? One answer. Be perfect. It's the never-ending testimony of Scripture. The Pharisees, their error, with the best of intentions, was that they thought that they could get around the realities of their own corruption by putting a hedge around the law. If we hedge it well enough, we won't break it. Theirs was a fundamental misunderstanding, and that's why when Jesus shows up on the scene, he speaks more law than he does gospel by miles. We assume that if it's a red letter in the Bible, it must be gospel. That's not true. Jesus shows up and preaches law to people who thought that they could keep the law. Why does he do that? He does that in order to expose the futility and the foolishness of man-made religion. He constantly, over and over again, seeks to blow up merit-based, works-based religion. Think about what he says so often. He preaches the law to the heart. He doesn't just talk about external conformity. He preaches the law to the heart to demonstrate you can't do it. You think you're good, but did you know that lust is adultery? You think you're good, but do you realize that if you're angry, you have broken the commandment that says don't murder? It's because good does not equal justify in God's economy. Perfect is what's required to be justified. And so Jesus over and over again seeks to destroy the confidence that we have in ourselves and in our own ability to be good enough to enter eternal life. So brothers and sisters, frankly, Everything that I've said up to this point makes this statement that I'm about to make true. When the emphasis becomes all about how we live, our Christianity becomes an exercise in missing the point. When it becomes all about how we live, our Christianity becomes an exercise in missing the point. And I've said enough in a number of sermons to trust that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. That how we live is important and we talk about that. But the problem exists when we become the focus and not Christ. When like we are in the foreground and Christ is the backdrop, that's a problem. Rather than the work of Jesus being at the center of our gaze, our works that we do in response to the work of Jesus takes center stage. And you might be thinking, well, brother, aren't you just splitting hairs with that? To which I would say, absolutely not. There is a world of difference in those perspectives. 
that my focus is the work of Jesus and in the backdrop is my works that I do in response rather than my works are my focus and the work of Christ is back here. That's a fundamentally different perspective. So how does this show up in the church? This kind of shifting the focus to us. Shows up sometimes where our lives and our spiritual health become the emphasis to the point that Jesus kind of becomes a life coach. Like, here's how your life can be better in Jesus. There are many buildings that are packed to listen to messages like that, right? The Bible becomes a kind of handbook for spiritual and emotional health. That is really nothing more than a kind of easy listening legalism that's like everywhere. But it also shows up in more exacting, more severe ways in the church when we focus completely on us. Everything boomerangs back around to me. and At the center is my faithfulness. How faithful am I being? My good works and my fruit, how much is there? Maybe it's about our sincerity. How sincere are we in our faith, in our repentance, in our obedience? How are our affections towards Christ when those become the focus? Or about abstinence from certain sins. That becomes the focus. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, right? And don't go with girls that do. Not cool. The implicit message in that kind of context, friends, if not the explicit one, is that if you don't have enough of all of that, you should be afraid. If you don't have enough, fruit, good works, sincerity, if your feelings about Jesus don't meet the standard, if you don't abstain from sin enough, and we don't quite know what that standard is because it's subjective. Because again, the standard of God's word is you're perfect or it's, it's nothing. The implicit message is if you don't measure up, you should be afraid. And fear becomes the motivator for everything. Dread of judgment and punishment becomes the motivator for everything. So here's the thing. I bet if we took a poll in the room and we ask, how many people in your life, trusting Christ, have struggled mightily with assurance of salvation? My hand would go up. I don't know about yours. We are so prone to look to our faithfulness and our works, our sincerity, our feelings toward Jesus or our abstinence from certain sins as the things that will make us feel saved. And so we don't feel saved. So what's the answer? We're kind of setting it all up, right? What's the answer? The million dollar question. In light of the holiness of God's law and the depth of our corruption, where in the world does peace come from? Where in the world does hope come from? Where does rest come from? What is it, brother, that propels us forward in the Christian life? You know where we're going. I hope you're, you're wanting it. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Like it really is all about Christ. Now, do our lives matter? Absolutely. Absolutely. Will we be changed? You better believe we will. But like we said, it is faith in the finished work of Christ. It is by beholding Christ that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. 
So when we look at each other and the main exhortation amongst the people at CBC is not like, hey, I love you, trust Christ. We're on the right track. We really are. Praise God that our hope is in Jesus and not in ourselves. Amen, somebody. Now we're getting back to another section of Bible. No citations, just a deluge of the word of God. Just lest anybody think that this is my idea. This is not. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is all. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Praise be to his name. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Friends, brothers and sisters, we are saved by Jesus, period. We are saved by Jesus, not our feelings toward him or even the sincerity of our commitment to him. Listen to the words of Horatius Bonar. It's a hymn we sing here. My love is oft times love. My joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. We are saved by Christ's works, not our works. 
We are saved by his sinlessness, not our zeal. Listen again to another hymn writer in accord with the word of God, Augustus Toplady. Quite a name, but this is quite a hymn. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you aware of our own corruption, and we hate it. We don't want to sin, but we do. We praise you and thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ. We praise you and we thank you for your plan of redemption that Jesus accomplished, that's applied to us by grace completely through faith, apart from anything that we could ever do. And so we pray, Father, that you would use the preaching of your word and that you would use this table that we're about to come to to sustain our faith in Christ and to strengthen our faith in him. We pray that as we come together as a church body to the table, that you would continue to knit our hearts together in love for one another and stir our affections for you as well. So we pray for your help in all of these things. And we pray in Jesus name. Amen.